Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. and give him the thumbs up, and he just gave me the thumbs up. Okay. Without any more logistics, we are ready to introduce our speaker, and we're so excited to have her here from sunny California, and I'd like to introduce Nancy. Should have drunk with you guys. This is right on. Okay, my name is Nancy. I'm a grateful alcoholic. I don't know when the fabulous speaker is showing up, but I'm here for now. (laughs) I heard last month you had Clancy. What? Put my drink somewhere? Down? Oh, there's, there's a. Oh, there it is. Well, this thing is, I must be getting fat. Look at that. Didn't do this when you were up here, you thin thing. Okay. Anyway, um, thank you for bringing me up here. This is fun for me. And uh, thank you, Mark. He's been giving me lots of attention and time today. We've run around Seattle. Beautiful. Just beautiful. And uh, Pixie was helpful, too. And uh, a lot of you guys are pretty cool. So anyway, I have had, it's been the past meeting the present a little bit. So I had a funny experience. I actually, uh, I, I'm, I'm 39 years sober, about 39 years and five months. And AA was 41 years old when I got sober. And, uh, you know, AA is the same. It's the same program, but you know, the world is changing and all that. Anyway, I'm uh, I'm really impressed with you know how we do what we do in that statement you read about anonymity. That's just top drawer. That's really good. It's very important to protect that. I was uh, when I was new. I remember that that just fascinated me, and I just loved it. In fact, when I was new, the traditions really hooked me in the very beginning on this program. Because I came from uh, a show business, rock and roll kind of background, and and I was steeped in in you know pushing yourself and thinking about self, and every time there's a break in the conversation, you got to talk about self, you know. So self. In fact, I kind of amused. I can tie a couple things together here. I used to live when I when I actually got sober. I lived in this little, I used to call it a little rock and roll palace in Laurel Canyon. Well, it was a lot more humble than that. It was kind of a little bit shabby, a two-story place. But 
I, um, I had all these pictures on the wall of me. <laughs> I used to wonder, you know, what do you mean self-centeredness is the root of my trouble? But anyway, and I, that just seemed like the right thing. They were pretty good pictures. They were taken by people who knew how to take pictures. I thought they were pretty nice. Anyway, so part of getting sober was learning to decorate without yourself all over. You know, like a really big deal to get a little flower from Walgreens and put on the wall, you know. It's like, so uh, I, in my first or second year, I got a, a poster, pretty nice looking, very attractive poster in a very attractive frame that said, said Pike's, Pike, Pike's Place, had a farmer and some apples, and I thought, well, that's a nice poster, but I thought it was just the whimsy of the of the person that made the poster to put Pike's place there. Until today, <laughs> and uh, and it, but that was very interesting. But you know that was that was the end of my drinking in that place, and and there were a lot of things at the end of my drinking that it helps me to reflect on. So I, I indulge me for just a second, and maybe you can relate to some of this. But I remember. You know, I had a lot of um I had a lot of parties. Did you ever have a lot of parties? Was there ever a time when you had a lot of parties or you went to a lot of remember parties that just anybody came? People you didn't even know were there and you know, I remember and they were just brawls, they were whoopee parties and people making noise and rattle 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 the music's loud. And this two story place had an inside stairway and at the bottom of it was a little landing. And I remember one night, very, very drunk, in having this party, places filled with strangers. And I, and, but I sort of knew most everybody. And I remember looking down from the top of that landing with all the pictures of me on the wall. <laughs> looked down and at the very bottom, and there was a woman I didn't know standing at the very bottom, and she looked up at me with this tortured expression. And there might be something inside of me that just finds people like that, like us. I seem to find alcoholics, and I think I always have. But anyway, I remember I, I never forgot that expression, and who I didn't know who that was. And then I got sober. I don't know about my second year of sobriety, and my home group was 4343 Radford in Studio City, for any of you that... Might have known what that was. And, uh, and I was in a noon meeting and there was a newcomer there and it was her. Of course, I'm all excited. I run up to her. I said, remember me? <laughs> and she didn't. Uh, uh, but I don't know if she did. I can't remember. But I just said, you know, enthusiastic talking about me. You were at my house. You were at my party. And I said, but you were having a terrible time. She cut me off. She said I was on a slip that night. And she had apparently been sober, knew what her problem was, but had chosen to go back to the life and had been there. And I remember the agony on her face. And, you know, to this day, I still, I kind of see her. But I remember that emotion and how that reached out towards me before I ever knew I had a problem. That was a time in my life when... Everyone else had problems. 
And alcoholism was not part of my uh, consciousness at all in any way. But she said I was on a slip that night. I never forgot that. Another time I remember I was 18 years old in New York City, and I was on the corner of, I think, 42nd and Broadway at the time, and there was a brick building opposite. And I had these musicians with me. And as we waited for the walking green, I looked at this building, and there was a man laying on the ground, wrapped around the building, hugging the building. And he'd, you know, he'd urinated all over himself, and he just looked like that, you know, like, like we do on the bottom. And this man was holding on to the building for dear life. And I looked at him, and it, it just went in here to my heart, and I said to my, the guitar players on the other side, I said, look at that. And they didn't see it. They started laughing. They didn't see it. And so I, I, those are the kinds of things that, that help me remember how at home I am here and who I am and what I've got and what I need to do every day. Those are the kinds of things that I can then track my history a little bit better before I start lying to myself. Or to you. But there was a, once I convinced me, it ain't nothing to lay it on you. You know, was old thing. But uh, Mark was just telling me, you know, you have to talk for an hour. I thought, wow, how about that, an hour? Hmm. Then I told him the good news. I said, told him what Dr. Bob said about that. Dr. Bob said no one had anything to say after 15 minutes. Guy must be spinning in his grave with all these talks around the world, huh? But um, he was a good boy, that Dr. Bob. He would drive around. He was worried about meetings getting too big because he thought if meetings got too big, they forgot what they were there for. They would forget the newcomer. And, you know, sometimes I think he's right when our meetings get too big, sometimes. And so he would drive around. You know, if it were up to Dr. Bob, we'd have never left Akron. But it wasn't up to Dr. Bob. It wasn't up to any one person why we're here. You know, we've been here 80 years now. So anyway, my little part in this is that I um, I had no intentions uh, ever of being an alcoholic. I just, I just, it didn't cross my mind. I had, a, I just had so many other things that I was involved in. And I, I had a, I had a, a kind of a, a weird beginning. And I was, uh, my mom carried me for 10 months. I must have had primordial knowledge that it was going to be kind of rough. <laughs> and little fins pressed up against the uterine wall. No, I don't want to be born. You know, but Actually, what, what happened was uh, my mom and, and dad drove out to California. I'm, I'm from Southern California. I'm from... Uh, I live in Tahunga now, and I flew in from Burbank. But they d- drove out to California from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they, my dad was a writer, and he was a, news- a journalist. And he get, just got a, got a fabulous job on the L.A. Times. Big job, big house in Glendale, California. And they, had, they drove out of this, I don't know, this is driving. This is driving a little jalopy in the 40s. They drove out with my two sisters in the back seat, my older sisters in the back seat, and and they landed there, and 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 life was really uh, very Americana. Norman Rockwell, you know Norman Rockwell, the 
paintings of dogs and picket fences. And that was what they had. And, you know, and so my mom used to tell me, she said, we didn't plan for you. The truth is, see, I'm lying already. The truth is, she never said it like that. But that's the way I heard it. You understand? That's the way I heard it. And so, you know, I came to you with a serious hearing problem. Believe me. I always heard weird stuff like that. We didn't plan for you, you know. But she said, you know, she probably just said one day, we didn't plan for you. You know, it's like, um, and, uh, it, you know, so anyway, I, I was born. She told me that my dad was crazy about me. He'd run home from the paper and he'd put me on his shoulders and run around the house, make me laugh until until bedtime. And And my dad gave me laughter. My dad gave me this, and uh, and he did that all the time. And, and when I was 18 months old, my two sisters were off in school, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and 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 we were there, and my dad was there, and it was May, pretty day in May, and he died on the kitchen floor, and I was I was 18 months old. I just started walking and talking a little bit, and I toddled around his head, and I said, "That's a daddy. That's a daddy. That's a daddy." And those were the last words he heard and the first words I said. And that has stuck with me in, in so many ways, just that trauma. And I, and I read, probably not good for me to have read this, but that, that uh, the death of a parent is one of the worst things that could happen to a young child. To anybody, but to a young child is very difficult. So anyway, from there, um, my mom had to make some big decisions and she had sisters back each and they each had a husband and they each said, we'll each take a girl because there were three little girls. And my mom said, no, she said, I'm going to keep them together. We're going to sold the big house, got a little duplex on Glendale Avenue, moved all the little girls on one side and she went to work and I lost my mom too, in a way, you understand? And I, and my sisters were too much older that I didn't see them that much either. So what happened to me is I ended up kind of, in a, in a weird way, spending so much time by myself from the very start. And uh, my mom was a wonderful person, but this was a choice that she made. And, you know, it was, it was the inventory, step four, five, and eight and nine, that really opened my eyes and gave me the awareness that my sisters lost their dad too. Before those steps, it never occurred to me. I wish I was all about me. Everything must be all about me. And the biggest secret I brought to my program of recovery with you guys was that I had killed my dad. I thought that I, I thought if I, if I just hadn't showed up, he would have lived and everything would have been all right and, you know, that was my decision. No one ever told me that. But that was what happens when you spend time by yourself. And you have this, you know, you're born with a hearing problem. And these other things that really needed a drink from the very start. So anyway, I got, I, I spent a lot of time in the backyard. I had a, a lively imagination. I had a lot of fantasy friends that I talked to that liked me and That was healthy, wasn't it? None of them beat me up. They all liked me. 
Anyway, uh, and I and I had a, I had another thing I discovered escaping in. Well, there are a couple things I like. I love to escape. That was my earliest memories. Loving to escape. I escaped in TV, and I escaped in music, and I escaped in books. And I just loved anything to go somewhere else rather than be here from the very start. Music would do that. TV would do that. Books would do that. And I would, um, sometimes I'd just, I'd just pretend to be sick and stay home so I could watch uh, reruns of uh, Father Knows Best with that perfect family. And I'd look at that perfect family on TV, this is an old 50s TV show, and, and I would think, what happened? And I'd look around me, what happened to us? And then I'd know it was all my fault. And this just was a pattern. These are patterns. These are mental habits, patterns that I was, was honing, refining. And, but that music was really the best. Music really, really, really cheered me up. I had a gift for music. God gave me a big voice, good pitch, rhythm, and I just loved it. And I loved all kinds of music. I loved all kinds of music. I mean, all kinds. I just, church music, the little, we had little transistor radios. I'd have it on under the pillow at night, just like earbuds now or something. Just, you know, I loved that. I, and I played piano from the very, from the, my earliest memories. I took piano lessons. Dance lessons, painting lessons, but music was a thing that always just was like, wow, this is my mission. And um, so that was okay. And life went on like that for a while. And, um, but, you know, we were all growing up, and my mom and I took a trip once. We actually took a train trip up to um, Washington. I think we took a trip to Olympia. And uh, on that train, I was molested by a stranger. And it was awful. It was an awful feeling. And I couldn't tell anybody. It was really awful. And I couldn't tell my mom. Because, again, it was all my fault. It wouldn't have happened if I wasn't there. And um, it was awful. And I brought that to the to this program of recovery, everything. I brought all of me here because they told me to do that. They said, AA doesn't want much of you, it wants all of you. So I brought all of me here because you said that's the way it works. Anyway, after that, uh, I turned 13 and puberty set in and that seemed awful. <laughs> puberty is so scary and everything is going crazy and my little friends at Catholic school didn't care about my music anymore or my good grades. They were all talking about boys. So and I, guess, and I got really tired of being good. I wanted to stretch out and have some fun. And uh, so I started to run around the other gangsters at Catholic school, and they thought it was pretty funny. And they taught me how to shave my legs, and they told me about boys, and we read movie magazines, and we fired up cigarettes behind the behind the garage and experimented with cigarettes and talking about boys, and it was all talk with me, all talk. And so we just did that. I started stealing, and uh, and we started drinking in the bathroom at Catholic school when I was 13 years old. And I started stealing more, and I learned to steal from... I, I had this crazy idea that I was like Robin Hood. 
Robin Hood stole from the rich, didn't he? That's the way legend has it. And he gave to the poor. I just stole from the rich. <laughs> and it stayed right here. <laughs> and then... Um, um, so that, and I started running away to Hollywood, and I got into public school, and I was working on my image, because it, it was, I was, I was such, my, my soul felt so lost in these years. I was like a, you know, like a, a you know, snowflakes fall, but I was like always falling through the, through, through the universe or something. I could never land on something. I never trusted anybody. Just to just push people around when I could, and when I couldn't, I'd talk about them. And when I couldn't push them around or talk about them, I'd avoid them. You know, all those wonderful things. And um, that was uh, what what I had had become of me. And I was going to the coffee houses in Hollywood. I discovered Hollywood as my cure for, you know, this burden of trying to live in Glendale. And I I and. and Hollywood were these coffee houses, and it was the 60s, and they were very different. You probably had coffee houses in Seattle in the 60s, but in Hollywood, they were just very different. They weren't Starbucks. Just they were little, they were about as big as this dais, and they're smoky, sticky places, and, and there was this music pouring out of these little places, and it was the music of our, you know, of our coming of age years, and protest music. Everybody was protesting. In the 60s, everybody protested. Everybody was upset. Everybody had a beef with somebody else, and it was always wrong. I mean, you could just open your front door, and if you listened really carefully, you'd hear someone out there going, no! It's not right! And I ran off and joined them. I didn't know what they were talking about. I just thought it was good to protest. It was tapping that anger inside, don't you know? It was tapping all those secrets and all that shame. They say at the root of every addiction is shame. Every addiction. And I got a lot of addictions. I got to tell you, I'm an alcoholic. Sure, pure alcoholic. And I'm an addict. And I'm an overeater. And I'm a gambler if you just let me do it. I'm, I got them all. Overspender, shopping, retail therapy. I got it all. And, uh, I, you know, they used to say an alcoholic is like an overstuffed chest of drawers. You get one drawer pushed in, another one pops out. <laughs> We're very creative people. So I'm going to these coffee houses, and we're singing about the war and, and uh, you know, puff the magic dragon. <laughs> Bet you miss those days a little bit. I do sometimes. Anyway, um <clears throat> There was a a part of me that felt so safe with the music and the other losers like me in those coffee houses. I felt so safe. It's the same part of me that feels safe in AA, but the safety in AA is 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 so real, and that's a difference. It's a big difference. It's a huge difference. Anyway, I'm going to these coffee houses and singing this protest music, and school's just going just terrible. I got I got a terrible, terrible grades and everything, but music classes. And um, when I was 15 years old, uh, I, I went back to high school one day just to see what they were doing. <laughs> and um, 
The captain of the football team invited me on a date, and it was a double date, and I had no idea why he was asking me because I wasn't, I wasn't really, I was an outsider. I made myself an outsider, but we went on this double date and got to the movie, the drive-in movie, you know, where you stay in the car, movies out there. And he showed me his innermost self. Now, I'm a big talker, but I was afraid. I was terrified. And what does any terrified young alcoholic have to do first? And I pointed at the tequila bottle that he brought for all four of us. And I said, before we get into that, give me that. And then I chug-a-lugged the whole bottle. And it hit real fast. And they took me home, and the last thing I remember is that they dumped me on my mother's back porch, and that Woody sped off into the night. I never saw him again. And um, my mom took me inside, and I go in and out of remembering her trying to help me. And I was, it was 1963 or 64, and, and alcoholism was still behind closed doors. Believe me, believe me, it was still not something to be proud of in any way, in any way. There was no public kudos for recovery and fewer even for alcoholism. You know, if you were drunk, get out of here. And they did, and society locked us up. But, uh, and so my mom didn't know what to do. She called the doctor and the doctor said to my mom that he couldn't help me but he'd stay on the phone with her while she gave me coffee enemas. I know, and I really like coffee. I think if she just, <laughs> I think if she just offered me a cup, I might have sat right up. But I was already deep in denial, and and most of the time, my tolerance was pretty good. I could drink pretty good most of the time, but I was so scared this night, it made the difference. Sex and alcohol together made the difference. I was so scared, just scared to death. I had to learn all about the the birds and the bees, you know, for lack of, about sex from people who knew less than me. You know, we never talked about that at home, at school, or anyway. You'd learn it from other people, strangers would teach you things. It's like, oh, okay. Anyway, um, the reason I really tell that story is not so much because it's kind of a odd story, but the next day nothing was ever said about that. You know, and I I believe that I just wore my mom out. I just wore her out. The other two weren't like me. My sisters turned out sort of good. I mean, they weren't as much of a problem. I was the problem. I was always causing problems. Saw my first therapist when I was 15 years old. It meant nothing, nothing, nothing to me. I had a job once when I was 15, and they did it all wrong there at that stationery store. And I kept wanting to change things. Does this sound familiar? So anyway, I just finally, I reached my, you know, I was a senior in high school when I met the band of my dreams. The band of my dreams was really wonderful. They were, they were classic, some of them were classically trained, and they were really gifted uh, composers and players, and uh, the best part of the band of my dreams was that at the time, everybody played three three guitars, and all these bands were three guitars and drums, three guitars and drums. Now, of course, so everything is bigger and 
wonderful now. But, but back then, it was just three guitars and drums. It was the Beach Boys, and it was the early Beatles, and it was, you know, Chuck Berry, Maybelline. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so, and there were a few girl singers, but, that, but mostly it was girl groups, and there were some guy groups. So, but this group, the band of my dreams, they played everything. I mean, they played everything. It was incredible. And I had my classical musical training, and so I heard them, and they were playing. They had bongas and congas and a flute and a violin. They had a cello. They had percussion. I told this story once to some students. I said, Carlos Santana came into our dressing room years ago and pointed at our percussionist and said, I'm going to try that someday. <laughs> it's only funny in here. It's not funny anywhere else. Sort of funny. Uh, anyway, but they were wonderful, and I started singing in the middle of the room. I started singing sometimes, I feel like a motherless child. And I sang that song because I did feel like a motherless child. Because I, I, it just was uh, still this snowflake falling. The only thing that could catch me, distract me, or slow my fall was music, and so it did. And eight of and we're this, the first group, the manifestation of this group, there were twenty six of us. They were called Jay Walker and the Pedestrians, and it was just too darn big, <laughs> too big to gig. You know, it was really just impossible. We didn't know where to stop and start. So eight of us broke away from there, and I, I graduated from high school with a partial scholarship to the California Institute of the Arts in, in Music Composition, and it meant nothing to me. Nothing. Zip. And uh, But this group was wonderful, and that meant a lot to me. And uh, with them, uh, we could really create. Eight of us broke away from Jay Walker, and we set up in the keyboard player's parents' house, which was a little bungalow in, Sil in Silver Lake, which in Los Angeles, Silver Lake is a, has always been a very bohemian area where a lot of artists and musicians and actors, people come from there, teachers and so on. Very nice area. And, but at the time, we set up in this little house that belonged to his parents who were from the old country. And they were little Italian people from the old country. That's a nice. And they said, you know, they had a little TV repair shop attached to the house. Just like you'd see on some sort of crazy movie. Anyway, over the front gate, there was these big red letters. Uh, Anthony's lawnmower and TV repair. You walk through that gate. You walk into this sort of open shop that was sort of floor-to-ceiling TVs and radios. And in every state of disrepair and repair and every kind of, and there was a bicycles and tricycles and dust and dirt blowing things. There was a cat in the corner always having kittens. <laughs> and there's a guy in this other corner who sat there with a cigarette right here and a soldering gun and sat there for 13 years. His name was Kelly and Kelly got stopped once for drinking and driving. So he stopped driving. And this is, and he could walk to work. This is Neighborhood Central here in Silver Lake, Griffith Park Boulevard. And we tromped through that store. We tromped into these musicians, strapping musicians, eight of us. We tromped through that shop, and we tromped into the next room. It was a little yellow kitchen. And in this kitchen, uh, it, was, it was a kitchen. It was a home. Not a house. It was a home. One wall was covered with their lives, pictures and photographs and trivets and ribbons and you know, uh, favorite pets and picnics where, you know, uh, aunts and uncles were. And all these and calendars and special dates and awards. And, and so this wall was plastered with their life. And it was so warm in there. And there was always wine on the table and coffee on the stove. And it was warm in there. 
And I was getting, I was getting a, a little bit older, and a little better looking. I was not a very good looking teenager until in my later years, I got a little better looking. And and they and these people would say to me, "Oh, she's a so beautiful." And 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 I, I and the band moved, moved tromped into the next room, which was the living room, and put all these instruments in there. We used to have these big amps, big acoustic amps. If anybody remembers it. They were huge amps, and they put a whole drum set in this little living room, and these big amps and congas and, and a piano, and we even broke the couch in there once. But we, that's where we were born. We wrote three 45-minute sets in there. Instead of going to college, we opened for Big Brother and Janice Joplin at the Holding Company at, at the Whiskey Go-Go. And we started to play. And, and at that, see, there was no music business in the beginning, obviously, right? It was all new. And so the business was being born, and we were right there with all that happening. It's very interesting. So what happened to me as an alcoholic was I felt vindicated. I felt, well, this is my spot. This is what I'm meant to do. You know, I had long as a kid, I believed in God. I was a very religious kid, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm really not. But it wore off when I started drinking, didn't it? I mean, once you find that power... That's lack of power is my dilemma. Booze gave me all the power I needed because it took away all this care and worry and self-consciousness, and music did the same thing. Music did the same thing for a long time. Anyway, I, I, I walked away from that scholarship. I went on the road with Sweetwater. We were really popular. You know, in those days, we just got invited. We played on all these shows. We played all over the country. Um, we, we played at the first pop festival. And uh, on and on, did lots of TV. And inside of me, I just had this, this alco- it was so alcoholic as I look back on it, this arrogance coupled with the inferiority. You could just look at me and then switch places. Yeah, yeah, see a few nodding heads. And it was inside of me all the time, and I was very aware of that. And I always felt like, I, you know, once they find out, that I killed my dad, for example. Once they find out that my mom would have had a better life if I'd never been born. Once they find, you know what I'm saying? And then I would just sing. See, and they would all seem to go away, like a Band-Aid. Well, we were the first band to take the stage at Woodstock, and then um, uh, four months after Woodstock, three days after we did the Red Skeleton Show, I was hit by a drunk driver on a rainy freeway one night, and I was taken to Glendale Memorial Hospital on the one night of the month when the neurologists are having their monthly meeting. These are the head doctors. And I had made a crater in the Buick that I was driving in the roof, the shape of my head. And I was in big, big trouble. So I, they, uh, they drilled two holes in my skull, and, and they all said, this girl will not live. No one could survive a blow like that. And the priest came, and I've had the last rites. So I've had all the sacraments. And the operative word is last, of course, the last 50 or 60 years, <laughs> so I could be covered. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> and the family came, and, and uh, it was a big deal, I heard. I don't really know about this. I'm just reporting. I have no memory of this. But I did come out of the coma. They said, well, if she comes out of the coma, she'll be a vegetable. And I came out of the coma, and I could add 13 and 4, and I knew who Tricky Dick was, and I had brain damage, but when you're 
have brain damage. What, you know, you're rock and roll. What's a little brain damage, you know? <laughs> you guys have seen Joe Cocker perform, right? So, come on. How bad could that be? But the thing that I lost is I permanently lost the use of one of my vocal cords. And I had to learn how to talk again. And through many years, I learned how to sing with one chord doing most of the work. Phenomenal. But uh, I also have alcoholism, and nothing was going to keep me from doing that. Because if I can't sing, I'm not worth anything. This is what I believed. We call them old ideas. We call them old ideas. And uh, so anyway, I, I, they, uh, I had six operations on my throat, and I got out of the hospital in two months, and it was very dark. For us, the band, it was very scary for my mom and my sisters and me, but I couldn't. When they told me, you cannot drink, a head injury, brain damage, right? Biggest drinkers in the world are people with brain damage. Did you know that? (laughs) No. I found that out, that brain damage people drink a lot. A lot of us drink a lot, and I drank a lot. I wasn't supposed to drink anything. And I, but here's, here's the thinking. What do you know, I thought. What do you know? You don't know me. And so, of course, I got drunk right away. And I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was kind of interesting to drink with me. I don't know. Have a seizure. But uh, I feel like uh, I feel so blessed to have gotten through that and gotten to you I can never pay that debt back because I know what a loser I was. I know how I used to think. That's what I'm telling you is all those losing ideas of mine that are manifesting in the ways that I'm describing. So anyway, um, I I, I started working on my voice so I could get this train done. Sweetwater fell apart. We made two more albums. I sort of pointed at those today. I said, but um, then, uh, you know, the band broke up. And it wasn't until I brought my story to those steps, four, five, six, seven, and eight, and nine, that I realized how much they hurt. I did not know that because I always felt like it was all about Planet Nancy. I didn't know how much the people around me hurt from what happened. Never, ever thought of that. Anyway, um, excuse me. I went uh, on this journey with alcoholism, big. And I was working on my voice. My ambition was guiding my choices. And and uh, like I told you, I described the house, all pictures of me and all this. And that was all a facade. And that was what, what I strove to maintain as much as I could. But then I reached that terrible part when you drink and you can't get drunk. Did anybody ever, ever have that happen? There'd be days I'd be drinking all day long and not be drunk. Remember that? And I and I smoked pot and and I and I took this medicine for my seizures and and I took speed every day. The doctor prescribed it. Dexedrine. How bad can that be? The doctor prescribed it. Doctor used to ask me if I drank too. I said, Oh no. I had to see the neurologist every three months, and he'd ask me take notes on on the the number of seizures and what had happened. And I said, and and uh, when I did get sober and I told him, he put he just looked at me and said, "No wonder." 
you know, anyway. That's embarrassing to admit that, but it, it, it's what happened. Anyhow, I'm going down this path, and it's a, it's the same dark path that every alcoholic goes down. All the trappings are are just trappings. It's a it's the shame inside. The root of my addiction is that shame. It's the double life, the up here and down here, and now they flip with just a look or just a thought or two. Can just change me from being arrogant to being less than. It's described in our literature. Dormat or, or over, same thing. I brought all that here. And yet when I came, I couldn't quite identify. It took a long time. They used to say the first three steps happen like that. You, you, you come, then you come to, and then you come to believe. And that, that sort of seems to be true. But anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of things. I did finally get, I was running around the 70s songwriters and uh, that kind of thing was going on then. Singer-songwriters were brand new. And we were running around with them. Got a new record deal of my own and so forth. That record came out. And it was interesting. These little things started happening. There was a woman in that record company who, um, uh, a rumor had it, she was in AA. And uh, I like to talk tell this story because... You know, we, I get a little precious sometimes with my anonymity in places where it's not necessary. Uh, you know, and, and this woman was not precious about it. This wasn't press, radio, or films. It was her job where she worked, and she had, had, was a member of AA in good standing. And now what happened is I started watching her because I knew that. I never, ever wanted to talk to her, but I just watched her. You know. I wanted to see what she did. What do AA people do? And she answered the phone. She said, hello. You know, she said the name of the record company. May we help you? And she watered plants. And she, was, she was a good person. And, and I watched her. And, you know, I, that was a great lesson for me because uh, I remember that sometimes I might be the only big book somebody's going to read. I might be the one because we're watchers. Alcoholics love to watch. We like to watch how bad other alcoholics are. <laughs> and we like to see what the sober ones are like. Oh, they're really weird. I don't want that. Those people that believe in tambourines and Jesus, you know. But, but she carried the message because she was a good person and she did it. She behaved herself and she's a nice woman. And I remember running up to her when I got sober and reintroducing myself, and it was very nice. Anyway, there had been other things that had happened in my life. I, you know, the guy wrapped around the building I told you about when I was 18, and this woman, I, I remember early associations with alcohol. Now, I come from an Irish Catholic family and lots of alcoholics in my family. My mother talked about her father once, told me a story about him, and I remember that my dad's brothers showing up with their families for holidays when I was a little girl. They would show up for holidays. And they would gather around the piano. And uh, up to that point, everybody was pretty stiff. They'd show up at the house and go, traffic wasn't too bad. I like what you did with the house. Your hair looks good. Everything okay? It would be like that. And then they'd pop those beers, and the arms would go around the shoulders. And everything changed. And I never forgot that. When I saw that when I was a little girl, everything changed with the drinking. So... Anyway, 
Uh, we had a... Oh, you're not going to believe this. What time did I start? You're not going to believe this. My watch says I haven't started yet. <laughs> what would Dr. Bob say? Um, that's going to be a problem. I need to know what time it is. Does they, can anybody help me out with it? Can you help me with it? 20, 20 minutes left. Thank you. Why did my watch do that? Okay, that's crazy. All right. Well, just can you like go shh or something? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Anyway, um, this, uh, this, uh, all these things were like little uh, uh, pre 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 warnings. Anyway, things got pretty bad. I called AA once, and a woman talked too much and wouldn't listen to me. And then I called again, and. Uh, you got it. You got you got the whole thing. And I called again. And this time, the the man who took my call shared with me. And you know, when we share, we just share. And uh, and no one had ever shared with me that I could recall before that morning. Now I had a black eye. I had a split lip. I was sweaty from drinking. And uh, and my hand had done this that morning. And I couldn't call the doctor because it was a Sunday morning. So I called AA again, and this man shared with me. And it was, it was just right. It was just right. He didn't tell me what was wrong with me at all. All I did was he kept saying over and over again, it sounds like you need a meeting. So he got the last word because he kept saying that. It sounds like you need a meeting. I didn't want a meeting. I just wanted to talk to somebody about my hand and my life and the Vietnam War and everything. <laughs> so I, I had this guilt over, of course, guilt, my old friend guilt came over me, and I felt like I'd used so much of this man's time, I better go to his meeting. So I put a lot of makeup on my other eyes so my eyes would match. That was very uh, painful, because I overdid it on the good eye, so I had to go over and put makeup on my hurt eye, and it really was hard to do. Anyway, I finally got to the meeting. I wore jeans that could have gone on their own if I gave them directions and money. I mean, I just didn't didn't know how to decorate my house or myself. And I just wound up at this meeting, and it was awful. It was really corny and, God, all this smiling. I really, I, I thought happiness was really stupid, you know, and everybody was so happy, and God. And they kept saying to me, are you new? And the way they said it, I knew they knew I hadn't been here before, so why are they saying it to me like that? They're like beating me up with that question. Are you new? Are you new? I we're so grateful. And all the teeth, everybody had great teeth. So I went and got drunk again and it totally didn't work. It was unbelievable. My last drunk was a complete sizzle. Nothing. Zip, nada, and then a blackout. And I came back to AA the next day, and I'm very grateful to be able to say that. Because I know it doesn't work out that way for many, many, many of us. But I wore a bikini to my first meeting. <laughs> and I was, I, believe me, I, you know, I just, the only reason I did it was I thought, you know, maybe I'm overreacting. I don't need a meeting. I need a tan. And uh, I wasn't sure maybe I'd just go to the beach. This thing would blow over. And, um, and I was really, really fat from drinking and really perspired a lot. I just, I just, it's, just poured. It was wine. It just poured out of me. And um, 
I, I, I had about two weeks when I, I, this guy met me in a meeting. He said, you'd be cute if you had a towel. <laughs> then it took me three weeks to get mad about it. So I called my sponsor. You know what he said? Anyway, um, because, you know, you bring the, the, the body and the mind catches up. You know, that's a true thing. This program is so divinely inspired because, we did, it, you know, everything that I was told would happen to me has happened to me. Everything I was told about how bad it gets, I have seen. I have witnessed a lot of the things, you know, that, that really do happen to us. We're very complicated people. You know, we got, they said, they would laugh and say, Nancy, you have a body that'll kill you if you drink, and you have a mind that'll kill you if you don't drink. Ha, 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 It was really amazing. You know, then, um, so I, I really, I didn't really want to get sober, but I, I was backing away from the gates of insanity or death because I knew that I was getting pretty crazy. I was hearing stuff. I was seeing things. As I sobered up, I, the first few days of my sobriety, I had audio hallucinations. One of them, I heard all these people coming to take me fishing. And I don't go fishing, but they were excited. <laughs> and uh, hollering on the other side of my front door, and I was mad. I said, boy, I don't feel good for this. This is not good. And I stopped across the room. I heard them hollering on the other side of the door, and I yanked the door open, and there was nobody there. I had about four days. Four days of sobriety, sobriety, without drinking and just going to meetings. But that was an important thing to happen to me because it made me, my conviction, get a little bit deeper. And I remembered a voice from the meeting. You only have to do this once. Then you never have to do it again unless you choose to. And I remember them saying that it gets worse before it gets better. And I'm grateful that somebody was willing to share that with me because these things happen to me. I'm seeing things when I could very well have said, oh, I'm not going through this. I need a drink. Instead, I heard it'll, you can get, you can do this. I heard you can do this. And I, and the, and the people telling their stories, the willingness to tell their stories, the willingness to tell about what we're really thinking. That's the miracle. I used to have a friend once used to say, take your successes to the Rotary Club. Bring your miracles. Bring this this dark, crazy stuff here. We got this, right? And she was right. And I and that was what saved my life. That gave me just enough courage to go one more day. Just go one more day. I got five days of sobriety, and I woke up early in the morning. I said, Jesus, I I better sell the big box of dope. I had a big box of rock and roll dope stored up in my bedroom. It was nice. And I was running around with two gay guys who were drug addicts. That was my social life, the busy social life I couldn't come to AA over. And I ran around with them. They were gay drug addicts, and it was smart, I thought, because, you know, they didn't drink my wine, they didn't want to have sex with me, and they cleaned my house. And they liked it. They liked the dope. They loved the dope. I remember that. So I called one of them up, and I'm drama queen. They say that we're drama, drama fiends around here. 
says you avoid morbid reflection and all that. I like drama. I love drama. One of my addictions, drama. And so I, I thought, you know, how much should I sell the fabulous box of dope for? What's a good price? Oh, I know a good price. 30 pieces of silver, right? Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I'll sell the dope for 30. So I, I said to this gay fellow, I said, my addict friend, I said, you know, we want to buy, buy the dope for 30 bucks. He was at my door. It was like a cartoon. You know, you hang up in the, he was right there. And I, I passed in that box and I, I said, wow. You know, and, and you know, I never heard from him again. I didn't even get a thank you note. Just no, no more. And I went into AA that night. And I mean, I went into AA that night and I was completely lost. There'll come a time when you can't picture life with alcohol or without it. I was completely lost. There were no drugs in my house now. There was no booze in my house now. And I was with all these goofy, happy people who are goofy, who are not smart. They are happy. What's wrong with them? So I sat in the back of the room. I had five days. I was in Beverly Hills at this big meeting. And they asked for newcomers. I got my hand up there just a little bit. And this woman in the middle of the room saw me. And she stomped back to me at the coffee break. And I saw her coming. Oh, big feet coming. Oh, geez. And I thought, you know, I'm going to, oh, here she comes. She's going to hit on me or something. God, what's going to happen here? She said, took the chair next to me, and she looked me dead in the eyes and said it would be all right. The miracle was that I, I let that in. It was the first thing I let in ever, ever in a long time. And she said that, and then she, she did put an arm around my shoulders, and it was a good arm. It was no harm there. It was good. And she said, it's going to be all right. She said a few times. And she looked after me, and that was a big night for me because that was the night I gave in. That was my first surrender. And I have to surrender every single day. At 39, and I still have to do that. I have to do it more. I've never been closer to a drink than I am now. And this happens to me and many that I've seen. We get a little time around here. We think, ah, I've got AA. I got this. You know what I really, I want to get drunk three times in my sobriety. And uh, last time I was 25 years sober. And it was 9-11. And that was a terrible morning. And I was completely uh, caught up in that. And I was frightened beyond belief. Many, many people were, but I'm the alcoholic. I'm the fish I got to catch, right? And so I'm in the, in the kitchen. And I have, I'm, now my mom is dead. Uh, and I have a, 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 my two sisters, and we have sort of one sister I, I'm crazy about, and I, I couldn't reach her, and she worked near the Pentagon, which was one of the buildings that was hit at 9-11, and I was sure she was gone that quick because the cell phone wouldn't get through, and the feelings that were overwhelming inside of me, this loss, this pain, terrible pain, and all again, it just spoke up, well, you might as well get drunk. It's the end of the world. And I thought, yeah, the end of the world. I never thought of that. Now, they used to talk a lot about reservations because the book said, if you want to quit drinking, they said you have no reservations. And so we used to always worry about our reservations when I was two and three years sober. But I never thought about the end of the world, see? But my alcoholism is an opportunist. And it waits for me to have those feelings. It waits for something that opens the door to defenseless. And the book talks about that. There's sometimes we have no mental defense. 
Now, I sat down in front of the TV because I got glued on those images, the first images of 9-11 with New York rolling down the street and all that. Caught up in that. And the skies were quiet because no one knew what was happening. I didn't tell anybody what I was thinking. Didn't call anybody. Didn't call, what's your name? Sponsor. <laughs> Just sat in the house with the TV. Thank you. And... uh and then I up and took myself to a meeting. About two days later, it was a Thursday, I had to go to this meeting where there were educated alcoholics so that we could talk about, theorize, philosophize on the meaning of 9-11. I was really looking forward to that. <laughs> so I pulled into the parking lot, and this big van pulled in. I'd never seen it before, a white van. The door pulled back, and out tumbled all these sweaty, buff newcomers from some house. And they were looking for a new meeting to take their chips. And they filled the room, this little meeting, this little discussion meeting where we were going to get to the bottom of 9-11. <laughs> and they kept taking their chips. And they kept talking about they were grateful. And they said, where I came from, they said, this means the world to me. And I thought, don't they know, uh, you know, about, we got to talk about 9-11. But gradually... I was being restored to sanity. It's called step two, right? I was being restored to sanity. And then it came back over me too. The gratitude that I so needed, that I so gave up in a heartbeat. This illness is very serious. And it it will do that. That's what it will do. But I was restored to sanity through the people that night. And I, I usually have been through the people given what I needed to go one more day. I, you know, I, I got married. I got divorced in this program. I went back to school in this program. I worked as a house cleaner. Oh, big old Miss Rock and Roller, right? I was cleaning houses. What happened to Rockstar? I wasn't very good at house cleaning either. But I went back to school, and I, I loved school because that brain, that damaged brain, there was parts that weren't damaged. You know, and I, I became a teacher, and then I became a professor. And that's what I do today. I profess. <laughs> I get, to, I, get, I get to teach these people, and, and, and they're us, you know, and I see that. And I get to be the copy of the big book that they see. I don't necessarily break my anonymity. I've done it a couple times, but not very much. I just, we have class like it's a meeting, you know what I'm saying? But there's a, there's a book uh, called Anamkara, and it means uh, soul, soul friend. It's a Celtic expression for soul friend. And I found my soul friends here. And this is a journey that I, I just want to take it all the way to the end. I want them to give me a big cake for 900 years. I want them to carry that cake. Because we take care of our elderly citizens, and I want to be one. Sober. And I got that from just hanging with you. It's good here in our A. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.